Hey, everybody. It's Andy Little here from the EM Over Easy podcast. Before I kick off our second to last episode of the year, I did want to take this chance that on behalf of the EM Over Easy team, we hope that each of you have a safe, happy, and healthy holiday season. And with that, let's get to this episode where John, Tanner, and myself are joined by Marco Perpersi and Yaron Ivan, two previous guests, as we sat down and talked about COVID, which again, if you've been paying attention, is starting to pop up again and starting to cause problems in different parts of the country. This amazing conversation was recorded at the ACUAP's Scientific Assembly. And don't forget, we are the official podcast of the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. If you want to learn more about this great organization on how you can join and how you can be a part of an upcoming CME event where you might get to see EM over easy live and in person, please visit ACUAP.org. Guys, let's talk a little bit about COVID. We know we needed to talk about it, but it wasn't like something we all got super pumped about talking about. But when we think about COVID-19... And if I ask the question, what's the biggest impact COVID-19 has had on your life as an EM provider, what would be your answer? Showed me what burnout really is. In short bursts and long bursts, I mean, this is this has been completely different than the first uh, however many years of practice that I've been in, um, which, you know, I'm sure for people who've practiced longer, it's been a complete 180. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's definitely shown the importance of acknowledging burnout and how to work through burnout and figuring out that you actually have it or admitting you have it. So that's the big one for me. I think for me as a pediatric emergency provider, unfortunately, it has, for lack of a better word, bastardized the phrase viral illness. So I used to say to parents, mom and dad, no worries, it's just a virus. And now I get a look at, what do you mean? COVID is a virus. Are you kidding me? So... It has changed the way I reassure parents by saying it's just a viral illness. Now viral illness is apparently a very bad thing. Yeah, I think just to back up what Tanner was saying, yeah, burnout is certainly something that we've experienced at a much higher level. And I also say for myself, I think I've been, I graduated residency in 2013. So I've been doing this, I did a five-year residency, EMIM. So since 2008, I could never foresee that we would ever get to a point where we were talking about rationing medical equipment, medical supplies in the United States, a country, I guess, as powerful and as wealthy as we are. And just to see how susceptible we are to, you know, to a virus, we're beholden to this virus that overwhelmed us at multiple periods during the last year and eight months or so. And I just never thought that I would ever see that day where we would have be having those conversations. And I hope we never see it again. For me to, to talk about the burnout part, I think the issue was, is that in residency, we had all figured out how to handle, you know, the worst day. We've talked about that on the show before. It's a coping mechanism that we all have to go through. That's, I mean, one of the reasons why some parts of residency are hard, your trauma rotations, your surgical, like your IC rotations is to kind of stress inoculate you for these bad experiences. And I found despite going to a, being trained in a very well-trained environment where we had a lot of opportunities to get stress inoculation, I never had this many bad days in a row. You know, I think about the surge in Ohio before I moved to Florida. I mean, John, John can remember there, there were literally days where we had no answers, just people dying, no answers, nothing to do early on in the pandemic, young people, old people, moms, dads, sons, like it was, it was at a level that I had never been prepared for. And it amplified this idea that, 
generally as EM physicians, we are not very good at taking care of ourselves. And I say that knowing that there are some people that I work with that are great at taking care of themselves. We, we all have colleagues that are like, they're the perfect person. But even those people had problems with COVID because it was just more than what they could handle. And then moving to Florida and being a part of the Delta, the Delta variant surge here where Again, we had a tool in vaccination, but despite all the good tools we had still going through days of boarding and multiple patients intubated, multiple patients on therapeutics, no oxygen devices in the hospital, despite patients still coming in. Like it's just, I think we had all gotten ready for that one day, the mass casualty event, even though we knew it was going to be bad, but none of us had been trained or prepared for the, the week or the two weeks or the month or the two years. You know, and think about Tanner, because Tanner, you've kind of danced around the country and you've been a part of multiple surges in multiple areas with where you've worked. You've probably never gotten a break. Eh, not really. No, I mean, it's but I don't know if anyone's really gotten a break break per se. Like you have waves and you get through it. But the problem is, is we've we all can see what's coming. Like as physicians, scientists, um, you know, we, we, we see you, you see the wave coming before it comes because it's nothing has has fixed the the major problem right or we haven't done enough to do what we think we could do um and so that's been i think the hard part is even though you do get a theoretical break like mentally we're not getting that break one of the things i think too is that it's i feel like we almost got it on multiple fronts it's like in the beginning of the pandemic and we've had multiple waves since then but we're feeling this strain at work to do more and to put ourselves at risk and then Couple that with uh, during these valleys during uh, the pandemic where physicians are losing their their jobs and people are being fired or laid off. And so it's like at first you're worried about your own health care and the, the safety of your family and yourself. And then it's like, well, now I'm worried about the livelihood of my family because now the va there's a valley in the pandemic and I'm being furloughed or um, they're talking about downsizing. And these are just words that we never really heard in probably medicine, but definitely emergency medicine. There was always, oh, there's going to be a need. There's going to be a need. There's going to be a need. And now we're finding out that maybe we've met and exceeded that need or will in the near future. So that has also contributed to fear and burnout and um, compassion fatigue. And, you know, it's been stressful on multiple fronts. I like to bring up the multiple fronts part because I think that's where when we think about what else has COVID taught us is, is that I had never – being in Ohio, training at Ohio University, I did some of my clinicals down in Southeast Ohio, and there are pockets of of anti-vaxxers or whatever whatever you want to call these individuals. But that became a mainstream thing because of COVID. Like it went from being a fringe network of people, you know, maybe one or two people at a school board meeting, maybe a couple families to a large majority of individuals who were against medicine and against science and against to me, some common sense things. And that just kind of skyrocketed all this too, because we, we now had a, a battle we had to fight that we had never had to fight before. And I say that knowing that a lot of our primary care folks have been fighting that for years, but on a smaller scale, but now it was mainstream and now it was on the news and now it was in the paper and now it was, you know, brought up at every meeting you went to and it was at soccer practice. And this, this onslaught of stuff we'd never had to deal with before. John, you've been really quiet. Yeah, it's just been fascinating just kind of listening to people. I mean, the perspective, you know, going in and saying viral illness and that kind of effect. Uh, and, and I was actually thinking during that time how, for me, it was kind of like you really thought the term anti-vaxxer was like a very small particular subset of people. And in my head, I kind of had a vision, um, a schema of what that person looked like. 
and what they sounded like. And I had some really negative views about them, justified or unjustified. And the thing that changed for me was realizing that, you know, I work in a department with over a hundred nurses, 25 docs. And not that I didn't cognitively know this, but it really pointed out to me that not everybody in medicine thinks the same thing, right? Not everybody's on board with the vaccine and not everybody's on board with, with certain, uh, certain things. And that actually shocked me quite a bit because I have always been of the belief that medicine was built on science. And that when science showed something that, you know, to quote the Mandalorian, that was the way, right? When you, when you prove something is good, you do it. And when you prove it's not good, you don't do it. And when it's equivocal, that's where the art is. And so for me, the, the struggle has been that I think the vaccine science is settled. And so I think it is the way, but how do I work with my colleagues that I know think it is not and still take care of patients and not as much as possible, not let that tear down bridges that you've attempted to build for years. That's really the thing that I think about. That's why I'm so contemplative about it. It's very frustrating. Amidst all of this chaos, there's a term that I've really liked and I, I've been telling my kids and it's look for the collateral beauty, right? And so I think there has been some collateral beauty because of COVID and that now, if you haven't been to an EM conference, which you're at now, but you haven't been one in the last year, uh, how many times have you heard somebody say where prominent EM physicians talk about going to a therapist and seeking help and mental health is now not on the menu. It's at the top of the menu of what we're prescribing people on how to deal with this, where a couple of years ago, I mean, outside of a couple of niches, it wasn't something we talked about. Vulnerability wasn't at the, at the forefront. And now it's, I mean, even yesterday, Ali Raja, one of our keynotes, in his keynote, one of his take-home points were, go get a therapist because what we're going through is hard and what we're going through is rough and make sure you're taking care of yourself. So I think there is some collateral beauty that we can say COVID did lead some good things. And if you were to pick a personal good thing that COVID's led to, what would that be? And we we kind of talked about the bad, but I think it's also worth highlighting some of the good. I mean, this is, this is slam dunk easy for me. Um, and, and this was one of the first things I started talking about with my family and friends, uh, which is the, the technology of the new vaccine, the mRNA vaccine. Like that's incredible. The fact that we could go as a, I mean, country, but also globe and say, this is a really bad thing. Let's put a whole stop on everything else. Let's focus on it. See if we can figure out this problem. And, and they did, and they did it amazingly and it's effective it's it's safe and it's it's one of those things where looking back 20 years from now i mean that's going to be one of those medical treatments that was a turning point because it's going to be extrapolated the technology is going to expand and it's be one of those things where we're going to go oh my gosh look what we got from that like it truly i think is going to be one of the the beauties of a kind of pretty horrible situation in general no no i i agree with that then 100 percent you know as a pediatric provider i struggle explaining to parents how vaccines are safe and effective for many years now. And this was yet another proof for it. And I, I absolutely agree with you. I think one of the other things that came back maybe positive for COVID is really uh, it showed us physicians, especially for us pediatric emergency physicians or pediatricians, we don't really know everything about viruses and URIs and coronavirus. Coronavirus has been around forever. And I, you know, I, I majored in biotechnology. I took a lot of microbiology i done general peds, tons of viral illnesses, and all of a sudden we have this virus that's, you know, it's a coronavirus. We know everything about it, but no. Um, this virus is totally different. We get something called MIS. 
I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, um, uh, they were saying that asymptomatic transmission has never been the drive without pandemics, behind by pandemics, lo and behold, asymptomatic transmission is the driving force of this pandemic. Um, so I think it, it really gave us uh, physicians opportunities to be humble and pause and say, you know, we're very knowledgeable. We're very knowledgeable about certain things, but there's always room to keep an open mind and learn more and kind of step back and say, oh, well, maybe we're wrong here. So I think in that regard, it had some positive effect. I really appreciate most the fact that it's revamped some of the administrativity of medicine. It really brought the administration into the clinical world to focus on a clinical problem that became everybody's problem. And I think it brought a healthy respect for some of the meetings and things that we do that suck time away that don't really have benefits. And I hope that some of the long lasting positives of this so that we can, I, I know we, we all talk about we wanted to be together for ACOAP and I get it. But in some ways, there are opportunities where this helps people, people that have a, a hard time traveling or have new children at home. So, so I think we need to blend what we've learned with this with our desire to be with others and really achieve some good balance. And I think it's lasted long enough that the effects will be enduring. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I remember when COVID started, it was, well, this will be a 90-day thing. We'll go, everything will be remote for 90 days. But because it's been 18 months, it's reset the normal for what needs to happen in person, what can be an email, what can be a phone call. Uh, it's re To me, it's rechanged communication lines of, do I have to tell all 15 people about it or is dissemination enough? No, 100%. I, I think it's, and hopefully, like John mentioned, hopefully all for the positive. I'm not looking forward to going back to everything in person. There is some benefit of going for a walk and listening to a meeting or doing XYZ while listening to a meeting, going grocery shopping, listening to a meeting, and having some time to be able to be present but not have to be actively present in person. I think the shift to, to Zoom, it has its challenges, and it's never going to be perfect, and it's never going to replace that in-person uh, connection that you get and the fun that, you know, getting together with old colleagues that you went to residency with. But I do think it, it does give you the opportunity to expose you to opinions and views which you might not ever have the chance to, whether it be in your own Wednesday conference. I mean, you can get national speakers much easier now because they can just hop on Zoom and, and deliver a lecture or even ACOEP if, if you can't get the week off and you want to attend. I mean, it's really much easier to, to attend these lectures uh, virtually if you can't do so in person. So it just gives you a world of experience or exposure to uh, to experts in a variety of fields that you might not otherwise have access to. And that I don't think is going to change. I think there will always be some option for whether it be Zoom or virtual or even for us now when we went back in person, we're doing one conference per month is going to be virtual. And uh, that allows us to get grand round speakers and experts from other other fields and uh, other other places. So. I think uh, just add on one more positive thing is think of how crazy it was in the beginning, a new disease that we hadn't really seen in terms of the severity of what COVID is compared to a typical viral illness and how many people, it was like the whole world was in didactics together. Like we were learning on the job, on the fly and sharing information rapidly, social media, on podcasts, blog posts, people were trying to, how can we treat patients better? What are we missing here? Like if you think early on, I mean, everyone was worried about ventilators and stuff because for forever, someone who came in 50% oxygen, like that person's getting tubed and put on a ventilator. And then we found out, hey, actually they don't do very well if we jump right to that. And what if we actually transition them to just some other 
treatments such as high flow nasal cannula or BiPAP or whatever it is. And like we worked through that process and all of a sudden we saw ways of treating the patients before we got to that end goal, right? Of, um, of just having to, okay, we have to put a tube in. Um, like it, just the process of, I mean, I remember staying up like stressed to the max at night, just listening and researching everything I could possibly find on this new disease process that no one had seen before to try to figure out on my next shift, what am I going to do when this person walks through the door? And it wasn't an if, it was when they walked through the door because it was happening fast. It's funny that you bring that up because it's the, you look at the, the way information is disseminated that if COVID had happened, say 2010, that was at a time where most of our doctors did not listen to podcasts. Uh, social media use among physicians was low. Not that we didn't use it, but we sure as heck didn't use it for medicine. And not that things happen in a time, but like it happened at a time where we were able to connect and treat and share with all the tools available. And it wasn't like super clunky. It was real time. Let's post a video on Twitter. Let's post a video on YouTube. Um, so the technology just happened to be there to where we could actually do this 100%. So, so when we think about barriers related to COVID, there's a lot we can talk about. But if you could pick what, you know, COVID's happened, we've all been through at least a, a surge. And again, surge is still going on ac across the country. What are some of the long lasting effects that we're seeing now that COVID has led to? Again, knowing there are still surges coming, how bad they're going to be, we don't know. But what are some of the, th the things that have happened in your shop or th that you kind of see as barriers to taking care of COVID in the future? I think for us, pediatric providers, uh, and there was a great lecture about it at ACOEP like yesterday, uh, really MISC has been a major humbling experience. And I see that as probably the biggest problem we have in the pediatric world with this disease, because it's something, again, completely different than what we've experienced. It's something that we have no experience with. It's something that has caused a few kids to die and many kids to go on ECMO and whatnot. It's been a major stressor for us. And I think that's going to, probably going to be the biggest challenge in the long run for this disease because, again, you have those kids, they get COVID, they're fine, and two months later, they're in the PICU for days with kidney failure and heart failure on ECMO. Um, so I think for us, this is going to be a, a very big challenge in the very long run. I think the long-term sequela of COVID, if you will, is going to be distrust in the medical system. It's going to be in public policy. And I think that one of the interesting things that, that maybe we weren't ready for was seeing how the sausage was made, right? The point of how we learned, Tanner's point of how we learned kind of on the fly over a year, over a year and a half, with that steep learning curve in the very beginning, that's disheartening to a lot of people that medicine doesn't have all of the answers. And it creates a lot of questions and uncertainty for people. And it really highlighted when you speak about public policy and you change it very quickly without having people understand the why, right? Why we should wear a mask. Things would have been very different if upfront the discussion would have been, we don't want people to wear masks because we don't want healthcare to run out of masks. That's very different. And so people do well when they're informed, but when they, they no longer trust, and it's going to take a while and it's going to take a while of doing things the right way before we get that trust back. And it's going to be very hard in the meantime. I love that you bring that up because I think it's when people ask me about that, I'd say, well, unfortunately, the public saw the scientific method happen. It was, here's a question. 
we we run we run a we run a test analysis. Oh, crappy question. Modify the question. Run a te- like we, they're watching it live. Like there's no IRB, there's no emails, there's no on a listserv. It's happening live, and there is some public distrust that I I don't know how long it's going to take. I th- I imagine a while. Yeah, and more more importantly, it was live human research subject studies where the stakes couldn't have been higher, right? Yeah, there was no placebo arm. You know, it wasn't double blinded. It wasn't some people. Re- it was we were all just kind of figuring it out, and and that's where, you know, when people ask me, did we get some parts of COVID wrong? I, I have to say, yeah, we did. There's a lot that we got wrong with COVID, and I think as physicians and medicine as general, we've got to admit that that there were things we did and things we didn't do. That um, if we had known better, we just didn't know. When you know better, you do better. So wrong is a relative term. I still think back about one of the earliest patients that I treated that uh, that I intubated with every belief that we were doing the right thing for them, and they and they died. And I don't know; they very well may have died regardless. But I know now, seeing that same patient, I would have put them on high flow nasal cannula and watched. And I can't help but wonder, as we we all would, right? Like, if I had known then what I know now. I would obviously do different things, but, but that's the hard part, right? Because the patient only gets the one encounter and that's their single most important encounter. And they're relying on what you bring to the table right then. I think this kind of goes along to what you guys were saying as far as uh, trust or faith in the, in the medical community. But I do think this is probably one of the first times we've seen on a global scale all at the same time, the effects of misinformation with vaccines during a pandemic because we've never been through a pandemic in our generation. So just to like literally see the effects of it in real time where it's like, you know, my alternative facts are better than your facts and um, having to deal with that in the emergency department also, which is not necessarily something that we've ever had to, to deal with. I think that because social media has many virtues, but also has many vices as well. And it's not going away anytime soon. I think that's going to be something we're dealing with for the foreseeable future. I mean, now we're seeing the whistleblower for Facebook come, and she's basically telling people what many already knew was that these algorithms that they use are made in such a way to generate clicks so that they can sell your eyes or your time on device, and that divisive inflammatory rhetoric generates more clicks than butterflies and flowers and sunshine, and that divisive inflammatory misinformation is going to generate more clicks. Yeah, I think one of the other um, concept of this pandemic was something that I often tell my scribes. I have a lot of scribes who are contemplating, should they go to grad school and get a PhD, become scientists, should they go to med school? And I often tell them, and I think this pandemic was another kind of evidence for it, if you become a physician, really the, the effect or the long-lasting effect or uh, influence that we have of, on, on medicine is, is, is really fairly small. Uh, it's really the people out there who do basic science research, who make the big difference. So in our lifetime, in my lifetime, I will treat hundreds of patients. But think about that person who came up with the vaccine. So think about how many lives he has saved, how many hospitalizations, how many unnecessary treatments. I think it was yet another humbling experience how we as physicians have fairly little impact on medicine, not nearly as much as we thought. It's really the people in the background in the lab who come up with those treatments with the big long lasting impact. There's been some great comments in the thread talking about, again, we bring up distrust and the divisiveness. And I think part of that is, is that, I mean, to, to say it again is, yeah, I, I think we all need to own our part of that because I think we've all been part of it. We've all, 
gotten angry. We've all, you know, I, I still remember conversations with family members. They call me about, oh, that I saw this and I'm just like, I don't have time for you. And then I think about people like Tanner, who if you follow Tanner on Facebook, if you don't, uh, you should. He's done these cool COVID vaccine and COVID like learning sessions with family members and contacts like giving his personal experience. And I, I think there's an opportunity now to where things are getting somewhat better, but we still have a lot of work to do. And I think a big part of it is mending fences with people that we've disagreed with and kind of inviting them back in to at least listen and have an open conversation about some of this stuff. I think from a system standpoint, I think it's important to realize is that although we all agree that burnout has been amplified, not every other part of the healthcare team has fared well through COVID. If you look at nursing across the country, if it isn't where you work, it's going to happen. Nurses are, they're leaving and they're either leaving one because they can go get a travel contract and make more money, but then that's going to lead to problems because they're never, they're never going to make that much money again when the pandemic's over. So maybe they'll leave nursing and early retirement and people just choosing other careers because this has been hard on a lot of people. And so I think that COVID is going to have a long lasting effect even outside of the um, patients and, and physical problems. Andy, you brought up the kind of series I was doing on Facebook and I'll be completely honest. That was, uh, it originated out of selfishness because I was struggling so hard with the emotional stuff that goes into the, the last you know 18 months or so and so it was a way to i was like i need to i need to start feeling like i'm doing something positive not just showing up to shifts and grinding it out and seeing bunches of people come in without vaccines that are struggling to breathe blah 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 and so i, I was like i need something positive to help kind of make me feel like i'm doing something good and the whole purpose was to make it a safe space to talk, to ask questions and not a preach session so much, because I think that's where a lot of people are getting, you know, they're struggling. It's, it's, it's kind of the same concept we talked about in another session uh, earlier about there's a difference between nudging someone a direction and mandating them. And they both can accomplish what the end goal is, but very, very different the way it feels. And so that was, I guess, in theory, kind of like a, a nudge to people saying, hey, I'm open. I will answer it honestly. If I can't answer it, I will figure it out and get back to you. And it's been amazing the positive reactions I've gotten to it. I've had multiple people reach out from those posts, either on the actual post themselves or just a direct message to me. And we've had great conversations. And I, multiple people who were vaccine hesitant or just didn't know came back to me and said, Hey, thank you. You, this is what changed my mind, or here's what actually made a difference for me. And I cannot tell you how much that made me feel so much better about my, just myself, because it, I felt like I, I was like, Oh my gosh, I did it. I got one person to at least just listen. And that listening turned into something that I felt was a positive outcome. And I hope that little things like that, little steps can help that person can then is going to hopefully talk to you, one of their friends or family. And those people will talk to their friends or family. It's like a ripple effect that I, you know, you just hope that that maybe that's going to be a little tiny thing that can maybe help stem the tide a little bit. I think, you know, it's amazing that you were able to put that series together. And I think seems most of, a, most of us are kind of close to the same age. And I feel like we were practicing in this cusp where we switched from kind of almost like this paternalistic approach to medicine where it's like, I'm going to recommend these things and you're going to do them because I'm the physician and you're a patient and I'm the one with the education. 
And it's probably been amplified because of the internet and social media, which most of us grew up during those when those things had become more prominent. So now patients are coming to you with questions and they've already looked up the answers to them. And yeah, they might not necessarily have all the background to to know whether this is a good treatment or a bad treatment, but you can't just say you have to get the vaccine because I'm the doctor and I said so because that's not good enough anymore. I mean, there's just so many alternative opinions that they're going to say, well, what about this post and that post? And you really have to come from a place of like compassion. Um, and it's interesting. I wrote a post on Rebel about this, but uh, whenever I find like I, I don't know something or I have a question that may be not necessarily a clinical question, I try to go to like experts in other fields and see how it's being answered. And it's like, I read this book by Chris Voss, who's an FBI negotiator. And I think what one of the things we have really poor skills in is is counseling patients and, and getting patients to necessarily um, agree with us per se, or in an evidence-based approach, like here are the facts. Now I want you to make the best decision based on the facts. Um, and it was a really eye-opening book because I realized how dumb I was in that particular area. Again, we just take for granted that we have the science behind us and people are going to do what we say. But for the listeners and for anybody who hasn't read it, he really does talk about how much compassion is needed in these hostage negotiations type of settings. And I would say that we need them even more so for our patients. We need to have compassion. I think if, if somebody was having uncontrolled diabetes and put themselves in a DKA, we don't feel angry at them because they went into DKA and there's not millions of websites saying you don't need to take your insulin out there, but there are probably hundreds of thousands of websites saying not to get vaccinated and we get angry when patients don't get vaccinated. And I think uh, it's really important that we have to have compassion. Some of these patients, they just don't necessarily know what the best decision is. And it's not that they're against vaccines. It's that no one's maybe taken the time to listen to what their specific concern is and address it without attacking them. Well, we want to thank Yaron and Marco for hopping on for this important and stellar conversation about how COVID-19 has impacted us and other clinicians around the country. If you're interested in learning more about our show, subscribing to our newsletter, or following us on social media, please visit emovereasy.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And while we've got you, we also want to thank the sponsor for this specific episode, Vapotherm, a company that provides maskless, non-invasive ventilation, which in the age of COVID can be miraculous for your patients and help you avoid intubation. Head on over to Vapotherm.com today to learn more about this device and other great things that they have to offer.